Good morning again, friends. Yeah, this was a fun time of worship this morning. So much joy in thinking of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been moving through a series of the parables of Jesus looking at, uh, particularly the parables in Matthew 13, what some people call the kingdom parables. And these parables give us insights into the mystery of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom truly is mysterious in one sense, for sure 2,000 years ago in what he shared, the disciples and the people around him did not fully understand uh, the kingdom, and so he spoke in parables. And so we're in part two of the mustard seed and the leaven. Last week we looked at mustard seed, this week uh, the leaven. But I'll begin with a picture. Does anybody know who this is? Oh, come on. This is Akio Morita. He is the co-founder and uh, owner, visionary leader of Sony, Sony Corporation. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the, the company. And with his leadership, he transformed Sony into a global electronics and entertainment powerhouse. He turned Sony into, or he was, he was the, one of the main factors of turning Sony into what it became and maybe what it is today. Uh, under his leadership, Sony created the first Walkman, the Walkman in 1979. How many of you remember this? Oh, the first portable cassette player. Uh, you know, he completely changed the trajectory of his company. Uh, this was only three years into his leadership there. And uh, he completely changed the trajectory of his company. And before he retired, he even changed the entire business culture in Japan. So not just his company, but his country. People in business still talk about him today. They talk about his legacy. And it's because of two main reasons. How he worked and what he taught. Those are the two factors that uh, people use to mark his influence in Japan. How he worked and what he taught. He influenced people to think and act differently. And in a similar way, God has designed the church to do that very thing. God designed us, his people, to influence the world by how we live and what we teach. And Jesus gave that vision in his parable of the leaven or yeast. Leaven and yeast are the same thing. Uh, I've got some yeast here. I don't know, anybody use this? Uh, Fleischmann's Rapid Rise Instant Yeast Fast Acting, right, in baking. I see a couple hands. None of you are bakers? Come on, the smell of bread baking? Okay, a few more, that's good. You know, last week we looked at the parable of the mustard seed, which Jesus used to teach about the kingdom of heaven's astounding growth. It's just amazing, astounding growth. And it's astounding in the sense that it was exponential growth and astounding in the sense that it was surprising. It grew in an unexpected way. It did not look like what they were expecting. The whole contrast between a cedar of Lebanon tree and the mustard tree that we talked about last week. Well, the next parable, the parable of the leaven, is similar because it too teaches how the kingdom of God will expand 
However, it highlights the internal growth of the kingdom versus the external growth like what the mustard seed represents. So the parable of the leaven is about the internal growth and the power within the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous. It's the internal growth that God is going to use to change the world. This is how God's kingdom, his plan, his strategy for us to influence the world. And so let's call that kingdom internal growth pervasive influence. Pervasive influence. Look with me at Matthew 13, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. So back in Jesus' day, a Jewish woman would be baking bread for her family nearly every day, every day except the Sabbath. They always get the Sabbath off, or they're supposed to. And so a woman would make bread for her family, and she always began with a little lump of fermented dough that she kept in her kitchen. That fermented dough is what they call yeast or leaven. That's the word for leaven. Now, yeast itself is microscopic. You can't really see it, but they would have a little lump of fermented dough that had the yeast that worked through the dough that they would keep from the previous dough that they made. And she would place that little, leap, that little piece of fermented dough inside the other fresh and new dough, and the yeast or leaven in the fermented dough would then spread through the entire lump of dough no matter how big. Leaven is completely pervasive. The word pervasive means it expands throughout the entire object. Everything it contacts, it completely, you could think of the word invade, like persuasive influence. It invades the whole part. It's widespread. And so, now I know that 50 pounds sounds like a lot. Maybe in your translation, it says it's like a woman that took uh, leaven and mixed it in three seda of flour. How many have three seda or three measures? Right. Okay, that amount is... 50 pounds, and that sounds like a lot, but you have to remember back in this day, bread was a main staple for their livelihood. You needed a lot of bread to survive. You ate bread every single day. It was a primary source of food, and leavened bread is the best. Leavened bread is so much better than unleavened bread. I'll give you an example. Last Friday was National Donut Day. (laughs) And my family honored that very, very special holiday by going to Krispy Kreme. There's a picture of us at Krispy Kreme enjoying our lives, very joyful. That picture on the right, at Krispy Kreme, they have a glass wall, it looks like, where you can look in and see how they make the donuts. And it starts on the what is our right side, It started with this long chain that went down to the floor and almost all the way up to the ceiling, and and these donuts just had to go through this long maze, it looked like, and we pointed out to the kids how they were proofing the dough or proving the dough, same thing. They proofed the dough. Now, if you're not a baker, no worries. All proofing the dough means is letting the dough sit, preferably in a warm, covered environment because it helps the yeast. And the yeast or leaven inside uh, 
ferments the sugars. Think of it like it eats the sugars, and that produces carbon dioxide gas, which bubbles up, which causes the fluffy, expanded nature of the dough, and it, and it causes the dough to rise. They do this because it develops the flavor and texture of the dough. When you put yeast inside it and eats up the sugars, it separates the sugar into alcohol and gas. And so that alcohol, it's non-alcoholic really. It burns out, it cooks out. But it gives the dough that texture and that flavor with the sugar that's there. And it just makes it wonderful. When leaven does its job, it makes bread tasty, like Krispy Kreme donuts, which were very tasty that day. And the Jews in Jesus' day appreciated it also. Uh, they loved it just like we do. Now, I know you may be thinking, if you've been to Sunday school, you've been to church before, you might be thinking, now wait a minute, I thought leaven was thought of negatively in the Bible. Leaven is even used symbolically to represent sin. What do you mean the Jews ate leavened bread all the time? That doesn't make sense. Well, it's partially true, what you may be thinking, but there's a common misconception about leaven. Leaven is not always thought about negatively, and let me prove it to you. Get it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you for some of you that care about my emotional stability here. Yeah, anyway. So, it is true for seven days out of the year during Passover, one week, seven days out of the year, the Jews would only eat unleavened bread. They wouldn't have any leaven in the house, and they wouldn't eat leavened bread. In the biblical account of the Exodus, the Israelites had to leave Egypt quickly so they didn't have time to let their bread rise. You should know that for the whole history of mankind, from the very beginning, we don't have any beginning before they would use fermented dough to make leavened bread. That's what they always did. But during the Exodus, they didn't have enough time to let the bread rise because they had to leave Egypt quickly. As a result, they only were allowed to eat unleavened bread. What the Hebrew word is matzah. It's like what some people use for communion. It's unleavened bread. Uh, and, they and if you've tasted it, it's not as good as donuts. But anyway, <laughs> that unleavened matzah bread was used as a symbol of their hasty departure and subsequent redemption. So for seven days out of the year, they would eat unleavened bread. But for the rest of the year, they would happily enjoy leavened bread. God even told them to eat leavened bread. I'll give you an example. During the Feast of Pentecost, God instructed the Jews to eat bread baked with leaven in Leviticus 23, 17. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. It's like the wave offering. It's like that. Made of two-tenths of an ephah, and they shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. It was a joyful provision by God to have leavened bread. Now, God clearly wouldn't tell them to use leaven in the offering if it, was, if it was always representative of evil and sin and it's bad and leaven's just bad, bad, bad. The Jews didn't think that way. They still to this day don't think that way. They never thought that way then. They loved leavened bread. Now, 
you might think, okay, historically we can show that not just in the Bible, but even just the Jewish culture and history. We know that they enjoy leavened bread. Leaven's not always evil. But what about the illustrations in the New Testament? Because it is almost always, but not always, used to represent something evil like hypocrisy or false teaching. Well, let's look at those, some of those examples. An example would be Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. So crowds are really coming around Jesus. And he began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Now, this is not just in Luke 12, but in Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus includes the leaven of the Sadducees, and in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he speaks of the leaven of Herod as well. So Jesus did use leaven as an illustration because people would understand this. But in all of these examples, Jesus is speaking of the, their behavior and their teachings. That's why he calls it hypocrisy. Their character and doctrine do not agree. They're inconsistent, incongruent, incompatible. They don't agree. They don't match. They're conflicting. That's what hypocrisy means. Notice how he points to the fact that it won't stay hidden in verse 2. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. In other words, their hypocrisy is that their behavior and their beliefs don't line up. That is what hypocrisy is. And so he says, beware of that leaven. It's not that leaven itself is bad. It's that leaven is influential. It is powerfully influential. That's why he says, be on your guard. Why? Because look at the first verse. Look at the thousands of people coming around Jesus. You know who has influenced those thousands of people, mostly Jews? You know who has been the biggest influence on them in leading them? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, even Herod. The idea is their influence influences thousands be on your guard. How they live and what they teach is pervasive and highly influential. Leaven represents something pervasive and highly influential. Another example we get is from Paul in his letter to the Galatians. You probably know this example. In verse 7, you were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion, the ones who are pulling you from the truth, does not come from one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. That verse 9 tells us the point of the leaven illustration. A little bit changes the entire thing. Well, what little bit? What is the leaven? It's their influence. That's what the word persuasion means. It means influence. This is what leaven represents. Pervasive influence. How? Your character and your doctrine. Your behavior and your beliefs. How you live and what you teach. That is what it's meant to represent in the Bible. That's how leaven is used. It's not that it's always bad, but we know that it is used in bad examples. Because when immorality, when bad character and bad doctrine, when bad behavior and bad beliefs, when how you live and what you teach, 
when it's corrupt, it will influence everything. It will influence your family. So think about your family. What you teach and how you live at home affects your kids more than anything else. And I mean it. It doesn't matter which YouTuber they're watching. You know, YouTubers are, you know, billions of followers. It doesn't matter who they're watching. It doesn't matter what they're looking at. Mom and dad have the greatest influence on a young person's life, and God designed it that way. The leaven is meant to represent influence. Yeast is so small, even invisible, but it influences the entire lump of dough. Of dough. The primary characteristic of leaven in the New Testament and the Old is that it influences completely from within. So the kingdom of heaven will expand from the inside out like leaven, which represents a Christian's beliefs, their, their teachings, their, what they tell others, and it also represents their character, how they live. How we live and what we teach. Those are the two primary elements of what leaven represents. And so that's what Jesus is intending with the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It's meant to influence the entire world. And how does it influence? By how you live and what you teach. And I thought this morning to just use the three most common characteristics of Christianity where character and doctrine come together. And you know them. It's faith, hope, and love. These are the three that even in Paul in his, letters to, his letter to the Corinthians told him, of all the kingdom's work and the gifts of the Spirit and how the body's supposed to work, when it's all said and done, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. That is our primary influence. Now, it's not our only influence, but it's our primary. So this is just one way to answer the question, how are you and I supposed to influence the world like leaven? How are we supposed to be the kingdom of God? When Jesus said, you and I are going to be like leaven, that's what the kingdom represents. We're like the wheat, we're like the mustard seed, we're like the leaven, we're like the other examples that describes what we are like, how the kingdom of God really looks. Because remember, in Luke 17, I read this morning at the very beginning, the kingdom of God is not like a global system kingdom. It's not something that you say, oh, there it is. It's located there. The headquarters is there. It's not like that. It's in your midst because it's in the people. The children of God, the people of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, you are God's primary agents to influence the world. You're his plan. So how do we influence the world like leaven? Well, it's a good thing you asked because I'm ready to answer that question. Number one, we think about faith. We show a faith that works. In order for us to influence, we've got to show a faith that works. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let them see your faith at work. Let them see the deeds that are informed by your trust and belief in God. Let them see your faith at work. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Gentiles are represented here as the non-believers, the ones who don't know the God of the Bible. So that they, when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. 
Let them see your faith working itself out. Let them see that. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion. I know the word religion gets a bad rap in a lot of contexts, and, and we understand why. You know, we get it. But the idea is, let your belief in who God is, your understanding of God, let it be pure and undefiled in what way? Because pure defiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Your faith ought to be at work. It ought to be helping the orphans and the widows. It ought to be visible. You ought to have deeds, actions. There ought to be consequences of your faith that people can see. Let it be visible. Let your faith be at work. James chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works. I will show you faith by my works. So the Bible tells us to show the world a faith that works, a faith that's coupled with deeds and actions that changes the world, that cares for widows and orphans, that serves one another, that does something. Our faith should do something. That's God's plan for us to be influential in the world. We can fight for people through the courts, through our government, through our charity, through our service, through our patience, through our gentleness. There are so many ways that our faith can be put to work, and that's part of God's plan. For you and I to be like leaven, to be like yeast, it's invisible, it's small, you can't see it. It starts with one, but it influences the whole world. It will expand into the whole world if we live in such a way where our faith is at work. So we show a faith that works. The second is we give a reason for hope. Hope. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So this verse presumes that someone's going to ask you, that you're living in such a way that someone sees you and says, hey, where'd you get that hope? You know, it kind of reminds me when I have, well, not clothes because no one cares about that, but sometimes I'll have some object or mostly food, I'll have some kind of food and, and, and even people here at church will be like, hey, where'd you get that? As soon as they see it, they're like, ooh, I want some. Where'd you get that? And so I don't tell them where I got it because I want to have it all to myself. But just imagine if they're asking me for the hope that's within me, where'd you get that hope? We're, we're not only called to have faith, but have a hope that other people ask us about and we can give them, here's why my hope is so great. Here's the hope that I have in God. Christians are called to offer hope in the midst of suffering. You know, that's the context of 1 Peter 3. He tells us over and over again, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer here. And you're going to suffer for reasons that are not fair. You're, you're going to suffer because you're a Christian. You're going to suffer because you have a bad employee. You're going to suffer because you're married to someone that makes you suffer. It's 1 Peter 3. Anyway, you're going to suffer. Not everybody does. Sometimes, you know, whatever. 
you're going to suffer. There's going to be suffering. Where's your hope? Where is your hope? Uh, getting older in old age. Not, not in every way. Listen, getting old, I've heard from some that it's wonderful. I've also heard stories where getting old stinks. Y- your body stops working. You just, you wake up, your back just always hurts. Your knees always hurt. You, you're, you can't do the same thing, and, and secretly you see those 20-year-olds just prancing around like deer on a side of a mountain, and you're like, I used to do that. I used to even do better than that, and it makes you discouraged because now you can't do it. Where's your hope? I, I, don't, I have not experienced this yet, but I know that this body is going to wear out eventually. My hope's not in this body. Some people, their hope is in just this life. And when my hope is in a future life with a new body that doesn't have arthritis, I have something to offer the world. Not Peter necessarily, although he mentions this later in that letter, but Paul talks about this with the Thessalonians too. Do you have hope in the face of death? Do we grieve like those without hope when we experience loss How do we grieve? We can grieve with hope. We have a reason for the hope that we have, and we should share it with others. That is going to influence the world because they don't have a hope. What hope do they have? They don't have life after death. They don't have a Jesus that paid for all of their sins and their creator who made them to be right with him and to have the new heavens and the new earth. They have no hope, but Christians have hope. And God wants us to influence the world through that hope. It's part of what makes the good news so good. In Mark chapter 16, verse 17, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You know, my sin is devastating, but I have hope. Is it because I'm a good person? No way. I'm not a good person. There's only one good, and it's God alone. Jesus was good. So many times I've prayed, Father, I'm glad you have Jesus. He did it. He did what I wish I could do that I cannot do. He gave you what you really deserve. You know what I really want for the Father? I want him to smile and laugh and be satisfied and be honored and to know how good he is. But there are some times my life, my actions do not reflect that. And I weep and I repent and I hate my sin And then immediately joy comes in because of the good news. I couldn't do it, but Jesus did. Jesus did it. I have hope, even though I sin and I'm broken and I'm weak and I make mistakes, the same mistakes. The reason I have hope is because of who he is and what he did. I have a hope that can't be taken away. They can burn my body at the stake, but they they cannot separate me from the love of God. They can't take away my salvation. They can't undo what Jesus did. The greatest enemy in the history of the world cannot undo what Jesus did. It is secure. We show a faith that works, we give a reason for hope, and we embody a love worth finding. A love worth finding. Faith, hope, and love. Nothing is more powerful on a human heart than love. Now, these three remain faith, hope, and love. 
but the greatest of these is love. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus was teaching, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies? You know who else is a big proponent in loving your enemies? I don't know of anybody except for Jesus and his followers. That's the only group I know. Now, there are other groups that say, let it go. Let it go, you be good. That's not exactly what Jesus means when he says, love your enemies. Loving someone isn't letting it go, it's bringing them in. And there's a difference. Love your enemies. You want to shock the world? You want to be influential? You want to change a group of people? Truly love your enemies. When they see you love someone that is antagonistic against you, when they, when they really see it, a genuine love for an enemy, it changes people's hearts. Matthew 22, the great commandments, the most important directive God ever gave. This is at the top of the list, and it's not one of the things on the list. This is meant to be the first and foremost of everything God has ever said to human beings. This is his number one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command of everything God has said, love, and love him. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything. Notice how the most important command, the most important, the greatest commandment, the most important is not obey God, which is important. You should obey him. The number one is love him and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love someone as if they're in your family. Love them as if they're your child, they're your spouse, they're yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat them like you would treat your child is the context. John chapter 13 and 15. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if. Now, there's two kinds of ifs. Actually, there's four, but I'm not going to bore you with Greek ifs and conditional clauses. There's two primary kinds of ifs in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular. There's the if, which means since you are this way. It's a sense. It's like uh, in, I think it's Matthew chapter 4, where uh, Satan comes to tempt Jesus, and he says, if you are the Son of God. I've heard some people botched that up because they said, if, it's like Satan was questioning if he was God. No, no, no. The Greek actually differentiates, but he's saying, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Hey, look, you're the Son of God. Do it. He was tempting him in that way, not, hey, are you really it? I don't know. He wasn't trying to bully him into it. He was saying, hey, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. That's how Satan works. That's an if like meaning since you are, since it's true. If I say, hey, since you're awesome, why don't you do this? I'm assuming you're awesome. So when he says, if you love one another, that is not what he means. He doesn't mean since you love one another. He means everyone will know that you follow me and represent me only if you love one another. Otherwise, they will not. Your love is going to influence whether people even know you're representing God or not. Not your doctrine, not your theology, not your, your talk, 
your love is going to show them whether or not you represent him. And then John 15, 12, this is my command. Now, this is a new command because no one's ever seen this yet. Before Jesus came, no one knew how to do this. They knew how to love God, but they didn't know how to do this part. Love one another as I have loved you. That changed 2,000 years ago. That was new. That was the new commandment. Before then, the commandment to love other people was not new. The commandment to love God was not new. But to love other people like Jesus loved you, that became new. I, want, I wanted to share this part because the love that's worth finding is so unique. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about loving your enemies. John 13 and 15, John 15, a new commandment, or this command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. It was, new, it was the new commandment. Here's the idea. When you love someone like Jesus loved you, it will be unique and powerful and influential. I'll give you an example. When I was a little kid, uh, I was abused by someone, one of my parents' friends. And I was abused in a very specific way, a very genderizing type way. And, um, and it was really hard on me, and I carried that through a big part of my life. Um, and when I became a teenager, I realized that I needed to decide if I forgave that person, and I didn't want to. When I became a Christian at 16, I realized God's love for me, but only partially. I didn't understand it all. When I was 18, I was also not very taken care of by my mom, who I love, and I have a great relationship with now, and uh, I've forgiven her, and she's forgiven me of all the crazy, horrible things I've done. Um, but I wrestled with how to forgive someone that has abused you in such an intimate way, in a sexual way, not my mom, but her friend. And I had to also forgive my mom for things. And, and I wrestled with how to forgive them. And I, at 18, I, I get dropped off in Mississippi and I go to Bible college and I start learning doctrine, real deep doctrine for the first time. I loved it. These are, doctrine just means teaching. It's just whatever the Bible teaches. And I learned about the teaching of sin and my sin against God. And I remember reading about in James chapter 2 where if you have broken just one commandment of God, just one, one single rule, the smallest to the biggest, according to Leviticus, even an unintentional sin, if you've committed even one sin, you've broken God's entire law. And I remember learning that and going, what? I've, I'm a lawbreaker. I've broken his entire law. And the wages of sin, like what you earn for breaking the law, the punishment, the consequence for sin is death. And I'm like, even for the smallest thing I did, it deserves death? Then I learned about God's holiness, how, how perfect he is, how wonderful he is, how holy he is. Unlike any of us, he is so great. Nothing like what we will ever be fully. He will make us to be like him, but we don't start out that way. And I learned about God's aseity. That means like he's completely complete all in himself. All these. Anyway, I learned these doctrines. And then I get to the New Testament where it talks about forgiveness. Love your enemies. Forgive them. 
like I have forgiven you. And it tore me up. How can I forgive this person who abused me so horribly? So wrong, so evil. How could I, be, how could I forgive that person? Then I learned in Christianity, forgiveness is not just a choice. Pfft, well, that blew every counselor out of the water with me. I, what do you mean it's not just? It is a choice. But eventually you have to forgive them in your heart. That's deeper than a choice. And that made me so crazy because I'm like, how can I forgive this person who's been so evil to me? Well, then God drew all that together for me um, as I read the Bible. Read the Bible every day. Read the Bible. It'll be worth it. Just understand God's Word. Read it. Even if you don't understand it, read it. And I started reading these things about God, and I started bringing them all together. And I realized that God has called me to forgive this person like he's forgiven me. My sin deserves death because of who God is and how holy he is. And I realized I have done worse to God than this person has done to me. I remember when I came to that realization, it was hard because I had to really dig in the scriptures about the penalty of sin and how bad sin is and how good God is and that whole deal. And that was, the world does not talk like this, by the way. The world will not say what is true. Here's what's true. Your sin against God is worse than anything anyone has ever done to you. And I know that's a shock for some. It was a shock for me, so I'm not being hard on you. It was a shock for me. But it's true. Because what they've, as a sinner, have done to you, who's also a sinner, even if you were innocent and didn't deserve it, is not the same thing as what you have done for, to God. And Jesus proved that on the cross. Do you know that other people's sin, like evil, terrorists, abusers, I mean abusers, abusers, hard to even look in that direction, that it does not take Jesus to die a second time for them? and only once for you? That it took just as much of Jesus' blood to forgive them of their sin as it does to forgive you of your sin? That the, the level of penalty of your sin and their sin is the same, which means you are just as sinful as they are sinful. And you require just as much mercy and grace as they require, according to the scriptures. Now, I never got to confront my the first sexual abuser, uh, I never got to confront that person again. But I did, I did get to talk to other people. And I come home from college, been reading all this in the Bible, learning, taking, you know, theology classes and learning the Bible. And I tell someone close to me, I have done worse to God than you have ever even almost done to me. And he has forgiven me of that. And when I think about his forgiveness to me, it makes me look at you completely different. I love you and I really do forgive you because when I see you and how wrong it was what you did, I am in the same place and I require the same mercy and grace. I really genuinely forgive you. It's not just a choice, it's in the heart because I deserve the same wrath that you deserve. I am no better than you, literally. I am not better than you. And I will not boast in heaven. And I will not be better because of my lesser sins. That's not how it works.
she was changed through that. And our relationship has forever been changed through that encounter. When you love people as Christ loved you, you will influence them in a powerful way that you cannot imagine. And, and I don't mean this as a complete rebuke, but I think it needs to be said. If it's hard, the doctrine of sin and the penalty of sin and your deserving hell, if that's really hard for you, which it was hard for me, the only reason why you can't believe that your sin is as bad against God as their sin is because you're proud. Pride is the only thing that will hinder you from having ears to hear and eyes to see. And I know if you tell a person they're proud and they're being proud, that doesn't open the door, right? I know that, I know that. But I, I want, in honor of the Holy Spirit, in honor of God's word, to tell you as gently as I can, you are proud if you don't believe that your sin is as bad as theirs. And if you would humble yourself, if you would humble yourself, what it means that God would lift you up is you will finally be able to forgive and love the way that God has loved you. Don't let pride get in the way. You're not better than other people, and that's a good thing. Jesus is better. That's good for all of us. And sin is bad. God's mercy is great. If you want to change the world, love people. Embody a love worth finding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is convicting and rebuking and challenges us to see you in a true light, to see ourselves in a true light. We do not deserve your mercy and grace. We never could. And we are so grateful and undeserving of the love you've shown us. Would you teach us to love one another? Would you teach us through good Bible teaching, that we would be able to give people a reason for the hope that's within us? And would you strengthen us and embolden us to have a faith that works? We love you because you first loved us. Help us to be a strong church family, that we would be a part of your kingdom building in the world. We want to be that influence. Help us to be your hands and feet, the salt and the light. It is only by your grace and by your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.